Welcome to the New York State Bar Association's Miranda Warnings, where we debate, discuss, and dive into law-related issues important to all of us. I'm Dave Miranda, past president of the New York State Bar Association and partner at the intellectual property law firm of Heslin, Rothenberg, Farley, and Messina. This week on Miranda Warnings, we're going to talk about the Supreme Court term that ended in 2020. We're here today with Dr. Vin Bonventri. Welcome, Vin. Always great to be with you, David. This is great. Great to have you here. Dr. Vin Bonventri is the Justice Robert H. Jackson Distinguished Professor at Albany Law School. Uh, He was selected prior to that by Chief Justice Warren Berger to serve as a Supreme Court Judicial Fellow. His area of focuses are the judicial process, the Supreme Court, and the New York Court of Appeals. And he publishes his views on the court at www.newyorkcourtwatcher.com. And we're going to talk about the Supreme Court. I, I'm so excited. I couldn't wait to talk to you, Van, about this. This was such an exciting Supreme Court term. The oh, yeah. oral arguments were broadcast live. There were twists and turns like a Netflix series. We had changing court alliances, a big grand finale with a pair of decisions on Trump's financial records. Was this really a particularly entertaining term or am I just getting no, 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 you're at quarantine? No, this, this was a blockbuster term. I mean, even though, you know, the nine of them with their four clerks each, you know, worked out an entire, you know, 55 or 60 decisions. <laughs> right. Unbelievable. People are complaining about the New York Court of Appeals. Okay, the New York Court of Appeals decide, with only seven judges, right? They decided 108 cases over the last year. These guys decided 55 to 60, depending upon how you count them, but really blockbuster. I mean, major cases, the kinds of cases where people argue about, arguments get heated, very important cases. Yeah, and you know, uh, you've written some uh, some articles about how uh, the Chief, Chief, Chief Judge Roberts has, um, you know, really uh, shown himself to be a swing vote. Have we ever seen a Chief the Chief Justice so predominantly be the swing vote on crucial decisions in a, in a SCOTUS term? Yeah, well, in terms of swing decision, that's one particular kind of, you know, a chief judge being in the majority all the time and swaying the court. But, you know, Chief Justice Marshall, I mean, when he was when he was in the center seat, virtually every landmark was written by him. Of course, as one of Jefferson's appointees wrote to Jefferson, the reason for that is that nobody else on the court was competent to write an opinion. But you had Chief Justice John Marshall, Chief Justice uh, uh, Charles Evan Hughes. And I have to say, you know, right here in New York, I saw the same kind of thing when uh, Saul Wachler was chief. That was a towering personality. He knew how to get majorities. Lippmann too. Lippman in the big blockbuster case as well, he was chief. He was able to sneak out those majorities, get a fourth vote, you know? So, and that's what, that's what uh, Roberts has been doing. This was an extraordinary year where you had really an extraordinary chief justice really being in the center seat, literally and metaphorically. Right, and he was clearly 
you know, it seemed clear that he's making this the, you know, the Roberts yes. court. respect for, uh, you know, stare decisis. Yes. Uh, respect for the institution. Um, he's obviously still a conservative, but that doesn't trump his respect for the court. No, you're absolutely right. And one of my favorite decisions of the court and favorite opinions of his was the one in the DACA case, you know, the uh, Department of Homeland Security, that case where he made it clear to the Trump administration, like he did last year with the citizenship question in the census, uh, in the census form. He basically said to the Trump administration, don't come into my court and lie. Don't come into my court and give us all kinds of rationalizations, which we know are not your real reasons for doing what you're doing. It wasn't your real reason why you were putting the citizenship question on the census form. And it's not the real reason you're giving us today why you want to repeal DACA. You know, you've gone along with all these other reasons. All of a sudden you come to us and you start rationalizing something entirely different. Don't be doing that in my court. Yeah, you can repeal DACA. You've got the authority to repeal DACA. Don't come into my court and lie. Basically, he said, you know, go back and and come up with the real reason and then we'll consider it. But what's that real reason going to look like now if the court knows what the real reasons were? Well, of course we know. And the reason that he knew that this was, you know, a post hoc rationalization is because he can read the newspapers and he knows what you know, the government is saying about why they're doing this. I thought there were two themes here in in uh, Roberts's decisions. One was, as you said, he's not going to take this. You know, you can't come in here and make stuff up and expect us to buy it, even though a couple of judges still buy it. And the second is that is what we said before, respect for the prior decisions of the court. Those were the two common themes, even if he kind of disagreed with the policy. Yeah. He had respect for the for stare decisis. Not even kind of disagreed, really disagreed, genuinely disagreed, and still disagrees. So, for example, in the abortion case, right? So he voted um, with the 5-4 majority, and he wrote his own separate concurring opinion to say, look, I'm voting to invalidate the Louisiana abortion restrictions because we've already decided that these kinds of restrictions are unconstitutional. They impose an undue burden on a woman's right to choose. I disagreed with the decision a year ago, two years ago, when we said that, but that's our precedent now. That's our precedent. And the other thing is talk about respect for the institution. Also, what's behind his mind is, this is the Supreme Court. We told you you can't do this. And then Louisiana, you went ahead and did it anyway. So right. I may not have agreed with the precedent, but we're sticking with the precedent. Right. And so you're talking about the case that was June Medical Services. Yes. Versus yes. Russo. Fascinating case, because, as you said, two years ago, um, there was an identical Texas law that was struck down. Women's, yeah, right. And at the time, it was a 5-4 decision. Roberts was a dissenter, so he didn't think it should have been struck down. Then they lose Kennedy, and they add Kavanaugh, and now they're thinking, oh, now we've got a 5-4 majority. Let's bring the exact same case in Louisiana. Right. And if everything held the same, because in this, because now... Kavanaugh agreed that it shouldn't be struck down. If everything held the same, that that would have been struck down. 
Um, if I mean, I mean the, the law would have been upheld. The Louisiana upheld, right. would have been upheld, would have really diluted the right to choose. We've seen Roberts do this before. You know, last year we had several um, death penalty cases in which Roberts stuck with precedent, even though he had disagreed at the time the precedent was rendered. He disagreed, but now he said, look, we've already decided this. When there are mental disabilities, you cannot execute someone under these circumstances. I disagreed when the precedent was set, but that's our precedent now. So he really is an institutionalist. He really wants to make it clear, this is the United States Supreme Court. Don't come here and lie. Don't come here and expect us just because there's a few uh, different members of the court that we're going to change our mind. Right. When the yeah. Supreme Court rules, that stance. That's right. And yeah. even if, you know, even if he was in, in the, you know, a dissenter, yeah. it still stands. And, you know, I, I think it's, you know, he's made that clear. It wasn't just one decision. It was a, it was a pattern. That's Let's right. talk about some of the other judges. I mean, we saw some of the, I'm going to say more, Liberal judges like Breyer and 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 Kagan uh, come down on uh, maybe what might be considered uh, more conservative um, on some of the cases. There was the Little Sisters of the Poor regarding yes. contraception, where Breyer and Kagan, you know, came down on the other side. Yes, um, and also uh, that ministerial exception case, Our Lady of Guadalupe School, the ministerial exception. Those cases, right. you, know, you know, we had a slew of religion cases this time. Most of the time, religion won. Most of the time, um, church or church organizations or religious objectors, they won most of the time. They didn't win with regard to pandemic restrictions in California, uh, which was another case in which Roberts joined with the liberals, right? Joined with the liberals, the 5-4 case, South Bay United Pentecostal. Right. But in all the other cases... Uh, well, let's other, talk about that case, the, 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 the pandemic case. Uh, obviously very interesting and very, you know, relevant. And th there was a prohibition on uh, uh, churches or uh, religious... Well, Restricted to, to an attendance of 50 at the church gatherings. And of course, social distancing was required and other kinds of protocols during the pandemic. And the church, uh, the church was arguing, and so were other religious organizations, were arguing that church were being uh, treated much more harshly than other kinds of activities. So this was discrimination against churches. And uh, Roberts went out of his way, even though the majority ruled with a per curiam, Roberts wrote a separate concurring opinion specifically to address the dissenters and said, no, there is no uh, comparison between a church where you have gatherings, where you have singing, where you have vocalization, um, as opposed to these other activities where, where, where California is allowing there to be gatherings, more people at the gathering, people can social distance. You don't do that at a church. Right. No. And I think they said, and someone, one of them said in the dissent that, you know, we're giving uh, more restrictive to go to church than to go to a casino. That's right. Yeah, that was Gorsuch, our buddy Gorsuch. Yeah, Gorsuch. He had a couple of winners this year. Yeah, Gorsuch. Speaking of Gorsuch, yeah. I mean, <laughs> so he wrote the decision that said half of Oklahoma is owned by Native Americans. 
I know. So, yeah, um, uh, Gorsuch had a grand slam in, in two cases this year. One, he gave half of Oklahoma to the Creek Nation. <laughs> and in the other one, of course, he said that the civil rights law of 1964 prohibiting sex uh, discrimination also protected LGBTQ uh, persons. Um, a, couple, a couple of things there. With regard to the Creek uh, Nation uh, case. There had been other rulings by Gorsuch, and I don't remember if they were since he's been at the Supreme Court or while he was on the Circuit Court. Circuit he Court. seems to be very sympathetic um, towards Native Americans, very sympathetic um, to the fact that, I mean, they've really been screwed throughout our history, you know. So he's very sympathetic to them. Uh, the other thing is uh, with the LGBTQ case where he uh, he went on and on. And I have to say, I mean, I just couldn't take it. I mean, I was nauseated after reading it. Um, I clear I clearly I mean, being a liberal, I clearly would have voted in favor of, you know, protecting LGBTQ against discrimination. But I think his reasoning was, I mean, you can't be serious. I mean, don't tell me that when the law was originally enacted, this is what they meant. You know, he tried to, you know, explain that, you know, sex discrimination included uh, of the law against sex discrimination protected LGBTQ persons because that's what the terms originally meant when it was enacted. And, you know, Alito, I thought, just killed him on that. Alito in dissent said, you got to be kidding, right? Um, on the other hand, he did throw in a couple of reasons that did make sense. You know, so if you have a couple, right, it's a man and a woman, that's fine. Nobody gets fired. You change the man, right? You make that a woman. All you've done is change sex and you get fired, right? So the logic of it. And then the broader principle, don't discriminate on the basis of something related to sex, because that's irrelevant virtually all the time. He couldn't, he just could not get himself simply to stick to that. He had to go on with all this originalism stuff. And the liberals voted with him. He's gonna throw that back at them. He's going to throw that back at them. You know, well, you know, so he had a. There was a common thread there too with him. At least there was some consistency. And you mentioned originalism. I mean, he said the word sex means gender. Um, he said, you know, the plain in the Oklahoma case. He said the plain meaning of the language gave the you know the Indian tribe this land. Right. The fact that it wasn't respected for you know whatever hundred years didn't yeah. change the plain meaning of yeah, of the words. Right. That's right. So, you know, if, if you can go to the Supreme Court and you can make an argument about textualism and original meaning of the textualism and you need one more vote. Right. You make that play to Gorsuch and you might get his vote. I remember there was a Supreme Court advocate, one of the one of the ones that's up there a lot. And he was saying we needed one more vote. And we figured, let's try to get Scalia will embarrass him into voting for us by making an originalist argument. Sure enough, who writes the majority opinion, Scalia, uh, with the originalist argument. The danger, of course, is that when the liberals, liberals sign on to that, 
as opposed to writing concurring opinions saying we agree with the result, is that now this originalism methodology can be thrown in their faces later on where you're not going to get very, you know, 20th century results, you know. Let's talk a little bit about the, the, the grand finale, oh. um, uh, which were the, the two cases involving Trump financials, which, you know, I was on the edge of my seat waiting for. Yeah. Um, I thought they were both fascinating cases. I, you know, I'd like to get your thoughts on the Trump v. Vance uh, decision, just the the which was written by Roberts, um, but the, there's a tremendous amount of history that goes into that decision. And so, tell us your thoughts on on those two. Sure. Well, the vote was seven to two, but really it was five plus two versus two, because the majority opinion by Roberts re completely rejected this absolute immunity, presidential absolute immunity. Also rejected any notion that because this was a state issuing the subpoenas that there should be heightened scrutiny. Roberts rejected that. Gorsuch and Kavanaugh didn't re reject that latter part. Gorsuch and Kavanaugh wanted heightened scrutiny when you get subpoenas coming from a state, because their argument was, which was one of the Trump arguments, was, oh, then the president is going to be subject, you know, to 50 different states, you know, with all these investigations. Roberts totally rejected that. Said, That's too bad. That's too bad. The president's not above the law any more than anybody else. Gorsuch and Kavanaugh wanted to go along with that. Of course, with regard to um, the dissenters, the two dissenters, Alito and, and Thomas, I mean, they just didn't want the president subject to these subpoenas at all, and they gave several different reasons. The background. Of course, you had United States versus Nixon, uh, the Watergate tapes case. Remember, however, that was a criminal investigation, but it was a federal criminal investigation. Clinton versus Jones, that was a civil suit, but it was also federal litigation. That gave the narrow opening for the Trump administration to say, Trump versus Vance, that's a state. That's state litigation. That's something entirely different. Yeah, and in the past we said federal litigation, the, the president's subject to that, but this is much, much different with regard to states. Roberts totally rejected that. And of course, it was him and the liberals, and then plus Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, at least for this case. Right. And then you had, uh, you know, Trump, I mean, uh, not Trump, Thomas and Alito uh, taking a real super hard line. And, you know, you read Thomas's dissent. And he's citing all these prior decisions. And then you look at him and he's citing his own dissent yeah. in prior decisions. How do you how do you do that? What's the basis for for writing a dissent and citing your own dissent? That's your authority. Hey, hey look, you know, his buddy Scalia used to cite decisions that were overruled. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> but you know, both Thomas and Alito, I mean, their their record in all these hot button cases, you know, whether we're talking about church and state, gun rights, LGBTQ rights, race, abortion, voting, you know, one of those all those hot button cases. Thomas and Alito were always with the Trump administration, whether the Trump administration was a party or, or whether the Trump administration issued an amicus brief, whether we're talking about the subpoena cases, whether we're talking about the DACA case, with all the immigration cases, we had a whole bunch of immigration cases. Thomas and Alito were always with the Trump administration. Uh, presidential appointment power, they were with Trump. Federal executions with Trump. The LGBTQ rights, of course, they were against those and they were in favor of the Trump administration's amicus brief. The abortion restrictions, they were in favor of the abortion restrictions and in favor of the Trump amicus brief. So they were always on the side of the Trump administration. So what did you think of the fact that now we could hear these oral arguments uh, in real time? Because because of the pandemic, the arguments had to be done, uh, you know, uh, over the phone. Uh, and they were, you know, played in real time and listened to, I think, uh, uh, more often than, than usual. Yeah. What were your thoughts on that whole process? I think uh, primarily is that if you're a real court geek like I am, you found it fascinating. But I think um, uh, to, to the non-court geeks, they probably listened in and said, oh, this is pretty cool. But after a while, they probably were bored. Because, you know, the questions and answers are about precedence, they're about legal interpretation, you know, and, and most people, are, they're just concerned about the result, right? right? So, you know, if you're a liberal, you loved what they did with the abortion case, you love what they did with the Trump cases, you love what they did with DACA, you know, you love what they did with LGBTQ rights. If you're a conservative, you didn't like that, but you liked what they did with the executions, you know, so forth and so on. And whether or not you care about interpretive methodology, you know, I mean, that's for people like you and me, David, who have nothing better to do than to worry about what's the correct way to interpret a statute or a constitutional provision, you know. Right, I know. Uh, the day I think one of the first arguments that they had online was a was a trademark case, yeah. Bookings.com, and I, I, you know, got my popcorn and soda, and I was I couldn't wait uh, to hear these uh, this trademark case um, in Bookings.com. I which, knew, it. and and then sometimes they do battle over a trademark or a copyright case, you know. Right. I mean, I'm sorry. If I'm on the court, I'm just throwing in with the majority because it's just not one of those things that boils my blood, you know. Not for you. And yet, yet I was all I could. I was all wound <laughs> up over it. <laughs> so so what's in store now for the for the future here? Um, a few things. First of all, with the Trump cases. We're going to get the Trump cases back again, probably in one form or another. It may even simply be the United States Supreme Court denying certiorari, right? So, I mean, yeah. yeah, because in, in Trump v. Mazars, they kind of punted a little bit and said, this is something that Congress and the executive chief executive should be working out together. Go back and try again. That's right. And Congress, you know, if you, you know, if you want us to take you seriously, 
be a little more specific. You know, I mean, come on, we know what's going on. Just like we know what's going on with Trump. We know what's going on with you guys. You, know? you right. just want to see his taxes and his financial information to embarrass the guy. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. But, you know, I think you got, you may see some, um, some, collateral, uh, you know, consequential matters coming from that. I'll tell you a big one, a really, really big one, a couple of big ones coming up. Religion versus LGBTQ rights. You're going to get those. The last time, you know, the, the majority of the court made it easy and said the Colorado Commission on Civil Rights was hostile to the baker who refused to create a same-sex um, cake for a same-sex married couple. They were hostile. They didn't give them a fair hearing. They called them a Nazi, said people like you created the Holocaust. But we're going to have cases, and they're coming up. They're down the pike right now where you may have a florist, right? You may have a caterer, and it is against their religion, right? To celebrate, to be complicit. That's the word nowadays, to be complicit in same-sex marriages. You're going to have religion as opposed to LGBTQ rights. Those are going to be incredibly important cases. The last time we had a major, major case like that, um, similar to that was the Bob Jones University case back when Chief Justice Berger was chief. Ronald Reagan wanted to give Bob Jones University tax credits. Uh, the IRS itself, some holdovers from Carter said, no, we're not going to give them tax credits. We can't call them a charitable Levy Mocenary organization because they segregate on the basis of race. Chief Justice Berger, for a majority of the court, said, look, we fought civil wars. We have amendments to the Constitution. We've been fighting like crazy, trying to end racial discrimination, racism in this country. We're not going to give tax breaks to Bob Jones University, a racist organization. There's a movement to overrule the Bob Jones case because the Bob Jones case gets in the way of these other cases where, you know, we should protect religious choices and religious objection more than we should protect, you know, uh, racial equality, uh, LGBTQ persons. Those are some big, big cases and that are going to have consequences for a long, long time in this country. Did we see a little preview of that in the uh, Lady of Guadalupe? case where they said there was uh, no employment discrimination for, for teachers at religious schools? We, we did, except for the fact, I think that case was a little easier, and that was because the record in the case showed that these particular teachers also instructed on religion in their classes. And so they could be fit, they could be squeezed in to the ministerial exception. Those were agents of the church to teach about religion. Uh, it's going to be much more difficult to say that when you've got a florist. I mean, what can you say about a florist? On the other hand, let's not disparage a florist's genuine religious belief. I may not particularly care for that religious belief, but, you know, religious beliefs are religious beliefs. You know, it's not that they're logical or mathematical or scientific. They're religious beliefs. What do you do with that? And don't forget, we do have a First Amendment for crying out loud that actually talks about 
no law, no law, right, against free exercise of religion. On the other hand, we have these very, very, very important interests uh, for equality, equal protection on the basis of race, LGBTQ, so forth and so on. And so, you know, is protecting LGBTQ persons, is that as compelling as protecting uh, minority races, right? Is it as important? Because if it is, then that's going to beat religious objections if we stick to the Bob Jones case. Well, Dr. Vin Bonventry, it's always great to talk to you here on Miranda Warnings. You're a regular guest. We love having you. I love talking to you about the Supreme Court. You know, these are all serious issues. As you know, we have uh, a lighthearted feature, music, book, or movie. Uh, You always grace us with a song. Uh, so for your for your music book or movie, you always sing for us. So what what kind of song do you have for us today? You know, to tell you the truth, I hadn't really thought about it, but I was telling a story the other day on a on a road trip down to Florida with my father. He's in the front seat. My father, he's driving, and my little brother John. And I'm in the back seat sleeping. I wake up and this is what I hear. My, they were both fans of Perry Como. So I don't know if you remember that song, Impossible. But so, my father who loved to sing, but he loved to sing like he was an opera star. So my little brother is saying, it's impossible. And then my father would sing, it's impossible. Tell the sun to leave the sky. Tell the sun to leave the sky. <laughs> That's what I woke up to. You know, it's just one of those memories that just stays with you forever, you know? And now you've got it. Now you've got it. Now we got it. Perry Como, (laughs) Impossible, uh, interpreted by Vin Bonventry. Great. Thank you for being with us, as always, uh, on Miranda Warnings. Love to be with you, David. Thanks for listening to Miranda Warnings. I encourage you to rate, review, and subscribe to Miranda Warnings, a NISBA podcast, available on the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts.